Welcome to Cardboard Conjecture. We're a podcast about board games where we have opinions and conclusions formed on the basis of incomplete information. This episode is brought to you by the great people at Gamesurplus.com, where you can find the current hits, the classics, and the hard-to-find titles. Let Carmen and Elaine find your games and receive free shipping for all contiguous U.S. shipping orders over $120. Remember, Gamesurplus.com. Great people, great selection, and great prices. And in Canada, amazing stories in Saskatoon. If you're in the Saskatoon area, come by the store for Friday night games and play and receive 20% off your purchase of any board games in the store. Amazing Stories is winner of the Joe Schuster Award for Best Comic Retailer in Canada and nominated in 2016 for the U.S. Eisner Spirit of Comics Retailer Award presented at Comic-Con. Hey there, this is episode two of Cardboard Conjecture. I'm your host, Norm. And I'm Luke. And on today's episode, we're going to discuss Luke's top 10 games of all time. Oh boy, oh boy. So far. Let's say right now. What is a cardboard cohort? Well, cardboard cohorts are board gamers banded together who support and inspire one another and become colleagues and friends in the board gaming community. And with that being said, we would like to support the good, the bored, and the ugly. They have a podcast on iTunes and they record weekly live stream YouTube content. So please check them out. Welcome back to Cardboard Conjecture. Let us start with Luke's top 10. And um, Ryan's not here. We're so sorry. He, uh, he had, how, what should we say? We had some, he had some laptop problems. Technical difficulties. Technical difficulties like Combined the laptop. With, yes, logistical was, scheduling issues. And it was left in another building on the other side of the city. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we're not going to point that out to him at the next podcast because we're that's not who we are. We don't point out each other's faults. No, no, especially to the timekeeper. No, no, yeah, yeah, because <laughs> he, he'll he'll cut our time and you know we'll be sad. <laughs> so, you want to get straight into this, or do you want to give us a little uh, little well, setup? Because people are going to find out that you're the heavier side of this. Uh, of this steel bridge. Well, there, there may be some surprises here, Norm. So um, <laughs> one thing I will say, and I, I, I think it's worth a little bit of preamble getting into a top 10 is uh, in general, I, I feel like a top 10 is most useful. And I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to try to qualify this and not say this poorly. I find top 10s to be mostly useless, <laughs> <laughs> um, but partly due to the glut of top 10 lists. But um, when they're most useful is when you sort of know the person where you have an understanding of their tastes and, and you, you sort of are able to then use them as a filter. I agree. You know, as, as sort of a research tool in a sense. And I've, I've really appreciated those kinds of top 10 lists um, coming from voices who, uh, you know, I value and respect in, in the gaming world. And I, I sort of think, oh, these are, these are titles I'd really like to explore more because this person likes them. So, so what I wanted to do at the outset was at least give a little bit of a background to who Luke is here, because I think that will help the listeners sort of, you know, connect with this top 10. I'm hoping you have maybe I'm going to say four or five games that I've played. Oh, I think it'll be there. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So you ready? I, oh. uh, well, okay. Another thing, oh, ranking, ordering. I, you know, I, I have a hard time with the, the specific <laughs> one to 10 dynamic. Uh, sorry. I'm, I'm derailing. Dude, you're married. You can commit. You can commit to a number. I can only commit to like one thing at a time. So <laughs> um, the ranking, I'll, I'll be honest with you, probably the, the five at the top are like, mm, yeah, those I really love. But after that, it got a little wishy-washy. And let's be honest, like it kind of depends on, uh, you know, the time of the year and which games I'm currently interested in. I could have swapped out things here or there. So so take that for what you will. But I think I think this 10 is, I'm, I'm pretty happy with this actually. Yeah. There's there's a seasonal thing to your gaming? You know, summer, winter, that kind of. <laughs> Probably more so, uh, I'd say, the seasons of two-player and multiplayer. I've gone through different, like, gaming groups. Let's let's look at it that way. And I'd say I've explored different sorts of seasons of gaming in terms of player count. And I, and then I tend to really enjoy two-player games when that's all I have as an option for is, is another partner in gaming. So, yeah. Um, how I approached my top ten... Um, I think there are a couple picks in here that are partly due to some nostalgic significance. Um, really, just a little quick window into my journey through gaming. I, you know, I started with the classics, Norm. I started with Catan. I started with Power Grid, Puerto Rico. I got into Twilight Struggle at that time. That was sort of my oh, introduction right there. That's a big jump. Yeah, yeah. Those, you know what? Catan to that sort of that cluster of Power Grid, Puerto Rico. Um, I'm sure in there. I, I think I, I played Kalis early on. Um, Those are some fast steps into the uh, into the into yeah, the and, hobby. Absolutely. And some fantastic games, absolutely fantastic games. And I think that sort of set the trajectory of certain things I was interested in in terms of my gaming. Cool. Um, after after that uh, sort of introduction, I I found some epic games. Um, and I will touch on some of those will be in this top 10, 4X, Space Epics. And I sort of wanted to explore those, those parts of this uh, hobby. After that, I think I, I started to sort of drift into interest in heavy Euros in general. And uh, in the last two years, as I mentioned in our previous episode, I, uh, I found 18XX. And that's kind of where I've been for a little while. Um, just for the listener's sake, what I enjoy in games, I enjoy... A depth. I enjoy games that uh, have many questions to be explored. That there's a there's a there's a variety of strategies, and it takes time to unpack how to actually see those things through. I enjoy cool. what I what I've heard called, and what I would what I like to term a current. That there's a, a player driven shifts within the game that you have to react to. And that, that ties into my, my love of interaction in games. I think a key quality is the fact that uh, games offer a connection between people, you and me, Norm, you know, us and others at the table. There's a we do this together kind of quality uh, to gaming that I find compelling. And so I want my games to have a lot of interaction. Cool. All right. Well, let's get this list going. And because yeah. uh, Ryan's not here, I'm going to take the honor in, uh, in doing the countdown. So here we go. All right. Number 10. All right. Well, my number 10. I, I cheated, by the way, on two entries. Already? <laughs> <laughs> so I cheated on, what is on entry French number 10. Grammar? There's an exception to the rule. All right. Okay, give us, give so us the exception. I'm going to cluster these together, even though they're quite different. But um, Commands and Colors, the series, okay. Commands and Colors, Ancients and Napoleonics. I've got, oh, I've got both of those here. And actually the Combat Commander series. I, I, I like both of those systems quite a lot. Um, 
they are some of my favorite tactical war games that I've played. Um, I find within each of these systems, there's something that's really compelling about the variety. Um, you know, there's a variety of maps mm -hmm. um, with the commands and colors ancients. You can sort of build your own terrain and there's a bunch of scenarios. And uh, I, what I love about that is it just offers so much to the players to explore. And is there enough variability in the system that it still <laughs> is interesting for you? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know what? I haven't even committed the money to purchase the numerous expansions for each of these. I know that Ancients and Napoleonics, the two systems I, I like the best in this Command and Color series, um, I mean, they've got to have at least six expansions each. And I'm, I'm still happy to revisit the scenarios in these base boxes. They're, they're just so rich. Um, something that really uh, benefits is when you sit down for an evening and each of you take a side and then you switch sides and play that scenario twice in a row. It's really interesting to see how that scenario unfolds. And because what, what happens is a lot of these are, you know, loosely to some extent, I'd say combat commander is, is a little bit more tightly grounded to historical events. Um, what you're sort of seeing often are scenarios that may be um, like advantageous to one side. Yeah. Um, and it's fun for you to be able to play it out in, uh, from, from both perspectives and see who might have done better, you know, oh. for that side who was advantaged, yeah. I suppose. And yeah. Cool. I, th I think these games, something that what they offer is amazing stories that emerge because of the actual gameplay that's happening. Is there, there's no scripted, you're not reading. I mean, they have a, often a little preamble at the beginning of each of the scenarios. You can sort of set the stage like this is the historic mm -hmm. context, etc. And I also find that interesting. I've honestly learned quite a bit of history um, from engaging in these types of games. So now we're moving on to number nine. All right. Um, loosely a war game, um, Hands in the Sea is my number nine. That's by who? This is Daniel Berger, and it is a spiritual successor to Martin Wallace's A Few Acres of Snow. Okay, I heard about that. that. Yeah. <clears throat> I initially picked up Wallace's A Few Acres of Snow a number of years ago and absolutely loved it. It's It's... Wallace's take on a war game through a deck building system. Now, what Daniel Berger has done is, is take the exact same system, the same mechanics, okay. and applied it to the Punic Wars. Oh, um, nice. Yeah, so you've got Rome and Carthage. And uh, within this game, he's added some fantastic pieces. There's a few more ways to sort of uh, grab victory points along the way. The conflict, again, the, the map is very different, of course. And there's there's it sort of mimics key conflict zones within, uh, within the island of Sicily. There's a whole naval combat aspect to the game. And, and I find the use of card play, which is what you want in a deck builder, is to me quite a bit more interesting than it was in A Few Acres of Snow. There's just a, a few more levels, uh, a few more uh, levels of strategy, but also I think mechanical pieces that he's added to this that I think makes it a, a worthy successor to A Few Acres. Cool. Well, I'm. You're. That's more games that I have to play now. So thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> I was. I was a little sarcastic, but. I was, <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay. Uh. Let's. Well, that one was nice and tight. We're gonna build in some time because I have this feeling that your top five are gonna require a bit more. You know. Well, we'll get to things. titles that uh, you, you. You said there's gonna be at least five that you've played. I think the next one might be one of them. I, yeah, I'm like, I'm like one of these kids going, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about next. No, <laughs> number eight. Number eight is something you are likely familiar with. It is Lahav. Oh, I could talk about this one too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You know, 
Lahav actually is a fairly recent, uh, I've been recently introduced to this game, uh, surprisingly. I think it's probably one of Uwe Rosenberg's uh, best games. Um, it's definitely his most economic game, and that's something that I really appreciate. Um, the, the mix between how the buildings work, the boats, the feeding strategies, there's such an interesting interplay. Well, I, and, sure. the, and the simplicity of it. Oh, yes. It's you, you either take from the docks or you activate a building. <clears throat> you know, if there's something I like about my worker placement <laughs> games, it's actually in, there's the complexity within the simplicity. Yeah. If that makes sense. I, I've played, sort of there's a different, uh, there's a different school of uh, worker placement that tends to be this kind of action compounding. So it's like, if I take this action, it now just, bam, it opens up into these 10 things I now need to do in a chain reaction. And I tend to find that less interesting. I like when my decision has to be extremely tight and thoughtful. And the way that I'm processing the complexity is in uh, is over time. It's saying... I only have this many actions in this yeah. phase or this turn. How am I going to best use them and in what order? And I think Lahav does that so fantastically. Well, and what's what I'm having fun with is the the strat the strat that you're describing is completely different than mine. Because for me, it's that immediate process of in what order did those buildings come out mm. and um, start pulling levers. Yeah. And all of a sudden, yeah. one's going to click and be like, okay, there we go. There's my angle um, that hasn't been discovered by somebody else or, you know, hasn't been manipulated by somebody else. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. basically that's, yeah, I've <laughs> never come to think about it in the, in the, in the terms of these are the, uh, you know, the number of actions I have broken down by action 10, I should be doing this, or I should be, you know, acquiring these levels of ships. Cool. I'm, I'm yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we'll need to play this one. And it plays fantastically at two. I think this one, that's partly why I love it so much, is you don't always find worker placement games that play so well at low player counts, and Lahav is a 2-3 gem. Yep. I can't that's agree more. Yeah. We tried we tried a, like a full player count, and it got... I, I mean, <laughs> there was just too much downtime in between your turns. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. I actually haven't even played it. Maybe I played it once at four? No, I think I've only played it two and three, yeah. and I just love it, you know. And I've heard I've heard that from a variety of people. Is four and especially five. It's like don't even don't even go there. Not that you are a big solo player, but this one is such a clever puzzle as a solo game. Mm. That I that's, and like I said, playing solo, I can sit there for you know twenty minutes and just look at and and have that process going. If I did this, then I did that, then I did that. It's going to take me down the wrong way, or I'm going to mm. you know engineer it that way so yeah, yeah. lahav i'm happy wonderful it's a great I, game i can be part of the show now <laughs> <laughs> all right so number seven hit it number seven um i mentioned how there was a a phase where i was exploring uh 4x and sort of more epic games and so this one uh, this is one of these games actually this is my second cheat norm so i'm throwing two titles in here and and i'll give a good justification for that one of these titles is a two-player only game in my opinion okay and it plays fantastically at two and it sort of like pushes all the same buttons as this other game which i think plays fantastically at a higher player count and so the two-player game is uh, Star Wars Rebellion. Yes. 
It's a yes. fantastic. I mean, I'm also a bit of a nerd in the IP. That so on my shelf. I love that game. I, I I love it. And the one I'm cheating with, who's also sharing the spot, is Twilight Imperium. And something that I think I'm okay with I, that. You know what? I actually haven't played the fourth edition. I've played TI3 with the expansions and and enjoyed that one so much. I think the reason I sort of see these as similar is that there there isn't there is a similar mechanic going on in terms of the the uh, activation of systems. Um, you know, Rebellion has a very different asymmetry baked into it, but I yep. mean, Twilight Imperium also it's all sort of based on this asymmetry, public goals. Um, in Rebellion, you sort of have these secret goals but then the the empire has such a fantastic uh that that game both these games i mean we could talk about them for i love the head fake that you can do um sending people out on missions or not or holding them back to counter right Mm -hmm. i mean you you can you present who you're possibly putting on the board and then it's a matter of like a cat and mouse thing right it's like oh i'm not going to put these guys out yet or and um i play i haven't played ti3 i played ti4 three times um and uh yeah that whole activating a system right in in rebellion you move ships into a system they're locked it locks it down yeah, yeah they're done it's it's just look away same thing with um with the <laughs> ti4 uh but what i liked about ti4 is that if you activate a system, you can do everything in that system. You can mm. produce, you can move to it, you can have a you know a conflict there. It's it's all the actions are open if you're if you're able to uh, have enough uh, um, the points mm-hmm. on the point system. The allocation of those points yep. with movement yep. and with military. Ah, oh. and that and that mimics itself in terms of the leaders' use in Star Wars Rebellion. Right, you have a limited number of leaders which grow over time, and their use of um, allocating them towards positions on the board systems or towards specific missions on cards. It's an incredibly tense and interesting decision space that's at the start of every turn. And then figuring out at which order to do things, right? Do I activate these cards to try this mission? How many leaders do I hold back because I might want to counter uh, something that my opponent does? I mean, there's it's tactics in the best of, of of that word, I think. And and so again, my justification for holding these both together is Rebellion is, I think, one of the best epic space opera two-player games that I've found, and Twilight Imperium is the best that I've found in terms of an epic space opera for a multiplayer experience. All right, well, let's move on to, I'm going to get this right, number six. Number six. Also a fairly recent addition, but I've uh, I've been enjoying it for quite a number of months now already. Um, got it to the table a number of times, including with yourself, and that would be Wildcatters. Yay! Let's talk about that game. That was fun. Mm-hmm. Wildcatters. Oh, there is an ecosystem at play here. Um, it's not just that I'm doing my thing, I'm developing my infrastructure. It is that the world <laughs> is growing in terms of infrastructure, in terms of transportation, in terms of oil production. And you got to jump in and make the best of how this ecosystem is operating, right? And, and within specific regions, you've got to figure out how you're going to piggyback with what other players are doing because you really can't do it yourself. I, I I don't think this game is designed in such a way that 
each player can sort of carve out their own little niche in the world of oil production. There's no turtling in this game. No, no. No, the, uh, what I recognized immediately was if you uh, monopolize the vertical integration structure, then you are not going to profit. Mm-hmm. And it is, it's necessary for you to um, use the resources of, you, of the p- other people at the board. And to the point, oh man, we talked about this before, to the point where you can lean on them so much that you cripple them economically. Mm-hmm. By sending by sending your oil to their refineries when they mm-hmm. have no when I had no shares you guys smacked me up with loans and it was <laughs> it, two two things I think that I I want to just highlight with Wildcatters um, I think one of them is how interesting it is that there are sort of two economies going on there's the economy of workers that you require to sort of build the actual infrastructure that you need to produce oil etc and what I find fascinating about the worker economy, if you want to call it that, is that it is designed to be more limited than you need it to be for each oh. player. Like you, you can't build what you want to build. And so that's, again, it's like the game forces you into building alongside other players or tapping into that other economy, which is the shares. Yeah. And so for instance, there's a, there's a phase in the game when players sort of pull the plug and they start pumping oil that costs a lot of workers to do that. But every other player who's in that region who has a, a, a rig can just sort of offer up some shares and they jump in on that process. And so it's this sort of dance between how do I best use those few workers I have? Yeah. But then at the same time, how am I collecting and utilizing that share economy? That's sort of the other half of the game there. It's it's totally fascinating. And I know you've, you've talked about previously the... Um, uh, the area majority dynamic. Something I also would want to highlight is the the name of the game, the Wildcatter Auctions, oh. which is something that kind of happens in the early to mid game. In each of the regions, they're seated at the beginning of the game with a certain number of Wildcatters, which are these tokens that essentially represent sort of um, rogue oil drillers. Yeah, <laughs> at the yeah, time. you pick up <coughs> or, employ yeah. or acquire. Yeah, absolutely, and. There's, there's a point in time uh, in the phase that you convert your uh, oil rig to a pump jack that an auction takes place to sort of buy up these small companies. And you are only allowed to be in on that auction if you've invested in the infrastructure in that region, right? So there's this whole uh, thing at the beginning of the game of how do, do I diversify? Do I get into all these places? Because, man, those wildcatter tokens can be major points at the end of the game. Yeah, wildcatters, the more I've played it, the more it's risen in terms of my... Love of it. Um, Container is a similar game, but I honestly, I think I prefer Wildcatters when it comes down to it. It's just got a few more moving parts that I really appreciate. So, All right. Number five. Number five. So I said it at the outset. Um, these top five are really my top five. Okay. Um, th- those other, and that's why I was cheating so much on the, <laughs> on the top 10 there. I, it's hard for me to, you know, quantify what is number six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, up, you know, 20. So the bottom the, half is a stew. The bo- Yeah, exactly. It, it seems that way. Although, I mean, I'm, I'm really happy with these, any of these games I would so gladly play. Um, but these top five are pretty solid for me. So number five is the granddaddy of worker placement. It's not Kalis. It is Agricola. <laughs> I was thinking that was going to pop in. I didn't want to be bold and, and make a, you know, a prediction, but yeah. All right. Talk about um, farming. Farming. Yes. I love Agricola. I've just continued to fall in love with this game. 
It's so well designed. It is so tight. And it's interesting at every player count. I, I've played quite a bit um, with my wife as a two-player game, and we enjoy this thing to death. It's, it's sort of one of those games that feels like a warm cup of tea, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you can sit down for an evening. We can usually pound out a game in about an hour and just enjoy it. And, and it's, there's, there's the right mix at, at a two-player game um, that's a bit confrontational. But also you're, you're able to sort of uh, focus on developing certain long-term strategies based on um, the cards that you're able to draft at the beginning. And, and I should probably say, even before we get going, what I think makes this game so, so perfect is the fact that there are so many card decks um, that have been produced for this thing. Yeah. And each of the decks, it sort of is a game within a game. You get this hand, essentially, at the beginning of the game that's going to orient you that's going to set a bit of a trajectory for the sort of strategies that you'd like to employ for the game and uh, we, we really like to do a nice drafting approach where you know we each get a certain you, you each get seven cards and you sort of just flip-flop back and forth i take one and then we flip the decks and you take one and, yeah. and you sort of are able to craft um something that an engine that you think is going to work for you and that that little mini game at the beginning is always exciting i mean Seriously, I could, I could play this right now and I would get excited about seeing which seven cards I'm going to get for well, my and then, improvements and my occupations. <laughs> and then having that beautiful mind moment where you just look at your cards and you're waiting for the synergy to point itself out and go, oh, there it is. And then you cut, in, in your mind, you mix things around and think, oh, okay, I got my plan now. Let's play the game. And, and you know what? And then the beauty is like, and you have to have some thick skin for this game because <laughs> you start trying to make that plan happen. And then you realize, ah, oh, the other players in the game have taken the exact things I needed on this turn. And if I wait one more turn, this isn't going to work anymore. I got to like change gears. And what I love about this game is I think it does it in, in so many ways so well for the feeding strategies, for um, your, your various ranching and farming strategies. You have to be able to shift gears and you have to have a thick skin because people are going to take exactly the actions that you need on the turn that you need to take them and if you aren't able to swim within that current so here's where that that word works yeah. really well there's a strong current happening in agricola and you need to be able to know how to how to how to make uh how to make moves within that well current. move in and out absolutely exactly. i can't agree more yeah and that's why i think this game is just it's an absolute hall of fame it's i think my it's my favorite um uwe rosenberg lahav is a a close second i suppose to be honest, like just give me give me base Agricola with one of the decks um, with my wife, and it's just one of my favorite gaming experiences I can have. It's fantastic. Well, all right, so moving on, number right. four. Oh, this one sort of dethroned Agricola in some ways. I just have been falling more and more in love with Keyflower, which is oh. number four. Yeah, <clears throat> and you know that this this does some incredible things with player interaction it uh i i think it steps up the game a little bit from agricola in the sense that um you've got these three different colored workers which when you're either taking an action on a tile or you're bidding for something in auction set and lock in that yeah. color um for, for that for all other players you can get into bidding wars because you're thinking this tile is key to my entire game again don't lose sight don't lose sight <laughs> you, got, you gotta you gotta balance yourself out in key flower um 
I mean, there's, there's so many important elements to each turn, right? Like I, I, I what I love is just this, um, this unknown, how, how many of each color might someone have and when are they going to pass? And if they pass, are they really passed? Are they going to jump back in and screw me over in this auction? Have they been holding out on me? That's, you know? I hate that great, delayed bid. Oh, great mind games. Yeah. Fantastic mind games in this game. I, I think I, this is not a certainty. I think I like it best just as the base game. Um, I've played with both the expansions and due to the nature, like what happens in each season is you, you, you randomly draw a number of tiles that are within that season. Right. And even within the base game, you're, you're only using a certain subset of the entire set of tiles for each season. But when you start adding expansions, um, the, the randomness factor goes up a little bit. Yeah. <clears throat> Again, it's kind of like you got to make the best of it. You got to swim in that current. But I do find it seems to be a tighter experience when you're playing just the base game. There's, you're going to see some key um, tiles come out. You might not see others that are key, but you have to react to that. Yeah. But the, the sort of the diversity of randomness is mitigated a little bit. I, I do really like the farmer's expansion, though. It's really fun with the animals. What I noticed and had fun with um, when I played Key Flowers was the decisions are tight. Mm -hmm. There's, there's no. I'll do this because I have two or three options from that decision. No, the decisions are very tight and sometimes very linear where mm. if someone sees you playing a strategy that's that's somewhat predictable. Um, you, you could get sideswiped easy in this game. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and you know, something that is, is quite interesting in that sense is you, you have a bit of hidden information given to you at the beginning in the form of those winter scoring tiles, right? You can <laughs> project, project oh. a little too strongly what you might have. Um, I mean, it, it's very, very interesting, you know? Uh, yeah, everything about this game. So good. All right, so let's move on to, we're at the top three now. Top three. It's getting getting pretty serious. Mm -hmm. All right, so number three. Norm, let's just, let's just quickly uh, count how many of these titles have you played so far. Okay, so the the Command and Conquer, I've not played, but so no, I have not played any of the Command and Conquer series. Uh, your number nine was Hands in the Sea. I have not played that. Um, Lahav, absolutely. Lahav. Number eight. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah. Rebellion. I can't. I can't get over that Lahav. Uh, I don't. I don't know why it's so <laughs> low though. Come on. All right. <laughs> well, a and key flower up there. Well, yeah. All right, so yeah, number seven is your, uh, and I'm not going to accuse you of cheating because I cheated at my number one, so I have nice. nothing to point. Yeah, so yeah, Rebellion and uh, TI3. Wildcatters at number six. Mm -hmm. Number five, Agricola. Four, Keyflower. I can't, everything you said, I, I'm all on board. That is the auction. I still, the auction makes me upset. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right, so... Let's not. Uh, we, let's not. So we we got some great overlap here, Norm. Yeah, yeah. Now, here we we're getting a little heavier. And this is uh, where it stops. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. So number three is Age of Steam. Oh, oh, oh! Age of Steam um, is such a fantastic system. Now, caveat: I have not played Steam. I have not played Railways of the World. Um, slash railroad tycoon 
So I cannot compare it, and that's I'm not interested in comparing it. I, I, I find Age of Steam, in my experience, to be exactly something I was looking for in a train game. Um, you know, it's got the whole package, I think. It's got some route building. It's got this kind of delivery mechanic that's so interesting because... Now, Norm, I, I don't know if you've played Age of Steam. I have Railways of the World, but okay. I've, I've been <clears throat> desperately trying to find someone with a copy and ta-da! Yeah. Um, what, what, what I really love is competition at all possible points of, <laughs> points of play within Age of Steam. Um, you've got competition in the route building. You've got competition in delivering resources, or goods, I should say, sorry, because goods are connected to specific cities, and they need to, they are picked up by specific players during a, you know, a sort of a movement phase. Um, there is competition, especially at the beginning of each turn in the form of an auction, typically. Um, and there, this auction sets um, the turn order for the entire, uh, the entire upcoming round. And the turn order is so important in Age of Steam because that means someone's going to be getting first build, someone's going to be getting first move, someone's going to be, you're, you're fighting for, for this, uh, you know, what do you need to do most this turn? But within that auction, you're not only setting that turn order, but you're getting a special sort of bonus for the round. And some of those bonuses, depending on which map you're playing, might be like in the, in the, the base game, the Rust Belt map, Mm -hmm. is going to be first move. So it doesn't actually matter what order it's in. If you won that auction, you're going to be the first to move if you want to be. Or, hey, maybe you were fourth in the auction. No one cared about taking first move. You get to choose that. There's these fun little pieces of play within that auction that are so delicious and so tense. And I still don't know how to do well at that <laughs> auction. Because money, Norm, money is so tight in this game. Um. That's the other beauty of this. There's a loan system. Every turn you are met with the challenge of wondering how many loans do I take out this turn? And it's just sort of an escalating thing. You literally have to, it's a Martin Wallace, absolutely, it's Martin Wallace. Dream Debt line. in a Martin Wallace game yeah. is part of a Martin Wallace game. Exactly. And so you're taking loans every turn. It's the game is kind of designed to do that because you don't have the cash flow at the beginning. You're building up a rail company. And you're going to, at some point in time, and I usually find this happens in the two-thirds zone of the game, where you're going to finally see your company get into a place where they're making some income, where you're able to pay off <laughs> all that <laughs> negative, uh, you know, negative uh, owings that you owe every turn. And I, I mean, it, I love that sort of that ending part of each phase where you you realize I owe money for each loan I've taken out. And by the way, you can't pay any loans back in this game, right? It's like, so that, oh, that escalation, that escalation factor. Now I've taken out 10 loans. I owe $10 at the end of every turn for the rest of this game. And if I need more money, I'm going to just keep owing more money back. As you, oh. as you expand your train's capacity, so the number of sort of junction points that it can run through, um, you also are paying income for, for upkeep, essentially, of that train. And so every turn as the game goes, and especially up to that halfway two-thirds point, you are feeling as though you are carving yourself a giant hole that's like a grave <laughs> that you're just going to sit in. <clears throat> and those who have done well will be able to get out of that hole. But those who don't, oh, man, they're, they're going to just lay there <laughs> at the end of the game and cry. 
Every time I talk about Age of Steam, honestly, it makes me want to have entire weekends filled of Age of Steam. <laughs> All right, so moving on. Age of Steam number three. Mm-hmm. That's that's now on the top of my games that I need to play because I know that it's within my reach. So here we go, number two. All right. This was historically my number one. And Uh-oh. I actually I encountered this game fairly early on. And it is connected to my favorite IP, which is the Lord of the Rings. And this is the War of the Ring. One of the largest, one of the most beautiful games I have still ever played. War of the Ring. I, I don't even know where to start. It's probably my most played game, by the way. And it's quite long. <laughs> and it's a two-player, right? And it's a two-player. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. You know, I've probably played this thing around 50 times. Honestly. Oh. Yeah, it's it's up there. It's... Uh, you know, and even as I'm talking about it, I'm like, maybe this is my number one. <laughs> well, I, I'm curious as to what dethroned War of the Rings, but carry on. Um, yes. I mean, if if you are into the, the story of Lord of the Rings, right, there is, uh, I think, no better experience than War of the Ring in terms of immersing you in that story. In fact, I've uh, Ben, who, who you've played with, um, he's been one of my... Uh, partners in crime here in playing War of the Ring more times than we probably should. <laughs> um, something we've actually said to each other is, man, th- those movies are really good. We really enjoy the Lord of the Rings movies, but I think I honestly would take an evening of just sitting and playing War of the Ring if I want to get into that story, if I want to get into that world again, because it does it, does it so perfectly. Um, asymmetry is sort of the name of the game, right? You have essentially these two big factions, the shadow and the free people, and you've got a war game going on. You've got a a giant map with tons of little figures, and and it looks pretty gimmicky, to be honest. Does it follow Uh, the chronology of the story, or is it pretty much toe-to-toe dudes on a map? No, it follows the chronology of the story. Um, You you sort of, this game picks up right as the Fellowship is leaving Rivendell. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so you have a lot of, and at the early game, posturing of uh, the free peoples in terms of defending certain strongholds. And you've got an, in, like an enormous number of units that the Shadow has to think about logistical problems in terms of posturing those armies to get, yeah, to, to sort of capture these strongholds or, or specific points that are... And, and, and the game is one in different ways for each of the factions. The Shadow can win it by capturing 10 points worth of strongholds or cities, um, or they can corrupt Frodo, the ring bearer. And there's a, you know, this, this beautiful sort of uh, two ways to do things is, is baked in for both that shadow player and then for the ring bearer player. The ring bearer can win the game typically by um, like dumping the ring into Mount Doom. Yeah. Or they can have a military victory by getting only four points to the shadow's 10. Um, but I mean, the game is just so well designed in terms of the board and how units move. Um, I'd say the one criticism that I've heard so many times is the combat is actually quite simple, right? It's, it's essentially D six rolls hits on, you know, fives and sixes. And then there's a, there's a card combat, um, dynamic that comes into play. In fact, I, I, one of the things that I, I think needs to be said about war of the ring is as much as it is a game on this board, it is a card game also. Like those, those two parts are almost equal in some ways because the way that you utilize your card and, and, and your hand that you're, you're sort of creating each turn is, is critical to, um, 
to doing things that are unexpected. <laughs> and there's a lot of story baked into these cards. I think story, story, story. I could just say yeah, that so many times here. But um, what I love is, you know, being someone who who has a, a good working knowledge of the Lord of the Rings stories. When I pick up a card, it doesn't have flavor text. It's not here's here's what this card you know it's this from this part in the book or whatever but yep. you read the title of the card and someone like me immediately is like mm-hmm this is doing the exact effect that i think it should based on its connection to the books <laughs> you know and i that's what absolutely blows my mind you can tell that the designers love the stories that tolkien wrote and they were able to distill those stories not into flavor text that sort of is a kitsch version of Lord of the Rings, but into mechanics that uh, the player then can sort of employ and 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 feel as though they're a part of that story. Well, that's cool. Mm -hmm. It is a beast to teach, and uh, you know, I taught it to someone might have been a year ago, and I was reminded of just how many rules there are. I mean, it really is. It really is. There's a lot of niggly things, but it's just got so much chrome because it's kind of based on these really technical and complex stories. All right. Always be there. Number two, War of the Rings. Okay, I'm curious as to what dethroned, and and I have this feeling because you haven't said those numbers and letters yet. So, <laughs> number one, number one is the 18xx, <laughs> and it's one of those challenges. How do I do? I choose a single title. You know what? Same as Age of Steam. I could probably choose specific maps with an age of steam and say, oh man, you know, Taiwan cube factories. Wow. They're, if my wife heard me say that, oh yeah, Taiwan cube factory, she'd be like, nerd alert. But, uh, <laughs> <Palooza>. <laughs> exactly. But same as that, you know, I, I, I like looking at the 18 XX as a system and I love so many dynamics within the 18 XX genre. Um, it's hard to say, Oh yeah, this title is number one. This title is probably my number three. You know, I, I think that's a bit of uh, you know minutia, kind of trying to get into that detail. Oh no worries. So I, I explained, um, I think on our last podcast there, what 18xx is all about. Um, for me, in the last two years, it has grown and grown and grown in terms of my uh, desire to play these titles. And I think there's two things I've really realized. There's so many 18xx games similar to Age of Steam maps, and each one offers a new experience. And so there's this like, you know the gamer who's Cult of the New? Yeah. I can be Cult of the New within this specific niche because I want to explore so many different 18xx, see what they do, see which new mechanic they bring to the table, see how they push the game system in a different way, see how they break my conceptions of how to play and challenge me and, and but all of this is done within the context of feeling like I have some skill because I've basically played uh, such a number of 18xx previously. And so I can walk into a new title with that sort of it's, it's, uh, it's making all that excitement of finding uh, a new toy, of finding something to explore. Um, it's bringing up all those feelings. But at the same time, I, I don't feel as if I'm getting a, a sort of one and done, you know, sort of half experience out of that mm -hmm. yeah and then so that's one thing i really love is exploring new 18xx titles because i think there's just some fantastically interesting things designers have done with these things with these games um, and then the other thing is grabbing titles and going deep 
and just playing it over and over and over and seeing how deep this rabbit hole goes in this game and realizing, especially when you play with different groups, that, wow, there are layers upon layers to this onion in terms of strategy. There's different ways to play this game. You know, the definition of like a sandbox game, I mean, 18xx really has a pretty simplistic rule set, but players can manipulate that rule set in ways unexpected. And that's what I love. Are you talking I love about 18xx or the Matrix? Oh, it basically is the Matrix. You get into it. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And, and what I've loved is, say, pick a title like 1849. It, I think, currently is my favorite 18xx. It's, it's you know, relatively simple, but you want to try something new? Go for it. Hammer out a new strategy. Try something within those like those levers and buttons that you haven't pulled or pushed before, and you're going to open some doors that's going to affect everybody. Because 18xx again is not there's it's not an experience that you're going to have by yourself. It's there's a current going on that what one player does has ripple effects throughout the game and across the other players' decisions. Yeah, I mean the basic sort of uh, spectrum that people often categorize is the the operational games which tend to be um, more about how do I manipulate this map board? How do I run a good company, which, you know, has a certain amount of uh, both spatial and logistical skills that you need to sort of manipulate. Mm -hmm. And then there's the stock game sort of on the other end of the spectrum. And I mean, they all have this blend of, you know, what kind of emphases of these things. The stock game tends to be you know, people call it shenanigans and it really is like, sometimes I'm just like, I got to pull some huge levers because I'm in last place right now. And if I don't do something to shake this up, I'm just going to continue to be in last place. There's no catch up mechanic going on here. And so what players are incentivized to do, I think, especially in stock games is completely throw the game state into something new, which maybe, you know, I, I'm, I'm reminded of like the PAX games. I don't know if you've played PAX oh, yeah. or PAX Porphyriana. It's like you change the game state with the, you know, what, or what are the conditions going on, right? Yeah. And uh, I think the same thing could be said of these 18xx games is that if you're in last or second place, just change the game state. That's the best way to do it. And that can happen through the selling and buying of stocks, uh, Kill, like killing off other people's companies in certain ways, disadvantaging yourself yeah. to disadvantage someone else more. Um, there's ways to get new companies and new capital into the game um, in a very immediate way, which then creates this chain reaction of train buying, which then rusts other companies' trains and creates this chain reaction of problems for other people. And so there's just so many ways to sort of game the game. And uh, I love that. I love exploring that. Well, Poor, poor Ryan here wasn't timekeeping, and I think we've, I'm sure, exceeded our limits. Well, <laughs> if, I, if with the trimming that I can do, well, I think we'll get this one down in mm. the hour range. So well, saying that, that's a nice segue. That was very polite. Yeah. Norm, let's wrap this thing up. So, yeah, You know, I do, I do have one thing just on the way out here. Um, absolutely. In terms of this top 10, because I, I do need to mention something that I consider the black holes in my collection and experience of playing. And I think that's important because there are games that I'm not certain, but quite quite sure that might be in this top 10 if I play them, if and when, play them more, I should say. Um, I'll just go through a quick list here. Absolutely. You might be able to resonate. We're not going to talk about them, but these are just th games I've either haven't played or I've played once, maybe twice, but I just, that's not enough to solidify an opinion on. We'll right? call those speculations. You have <laughs> speculations. some speculations. So All go right. ahead, give me some so, specs. 
The first one is Brass. I've never played Brass. Nor um, have I. Yeah, it's on its way. So that's good. Goody. <laughs> we'll be All playing right. that soon. So Next that's one. Dominant Species. I have that. We're going to play it. Please. Okay, next speculation. Tigris and Euphrates or Yellow and Yangtze. Um, um, through the ages, I, you know, I've probably played this one the most out of all these speculations. I've played it probably three, maybe four times, but it was years ago now. And I've, I haven't and returned to... Since then. Yeah, and I haven't returned to the new story uh, uh, through the ages, that newer version. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to. I remember it being... Out of all the um, you know forex type uh, civilization games that I've played, um, I think that one sort of rises to the top. Um, other than maybe like I think Twilight is just such a different animal. Obviously, I haven't played that one either, and I'm I'm attracted to the cards system. Yeah, it's it's very very interesting. Yeah, yeah, and I remember enjoying it quite a bit. Fiddly, fiddly is all get out, but yeah. Next speculation because we Arc- can Arc- Arc- Ryan yeah. has that one. I know. We're going to have to have a Bridge City Board Gamer weekend binge. Oh, man. We have to binge, yeah. And and partly why Arkwright is on the top of my list is uh, a good 18xx friend said, this is the game I would play if I wasn't playing 18xx, you know? And that's that's worth something to me, so. <laughs> okay, that's, because I loved, I, the Arkwright had, it was such an, a fun economic game if you can use fun and economics in the same sentence. Next speculation. Lignum, possibly. Going to chop some wood down. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's, you, you, you saw, you saw my, my top ten list. There are a number of worker placement, sort of like that style game in here, right? Like Lahav Agricola, mm-hmm. uh, and Lignum seems like it might sort of fit in that sort of zone as well. So, all right. Do you have any okay. more speculations on that list? I do. Okay. So those are ones I have yet to really play, and I don't <laughs> own it all. The Estates, uh, formerly known as Noya Heimat. You have that? Well, no, not yet. I mean, it's on its way. So, all right. I mean, I'm, I love auction games. Like, you, we could also do a whole show on Kinesia auction games, but I've heard Noya Heimat, the Estates, is one of the best in that in that genre. So, the PAX games. I mean, I've played, but not really. Like, I need to play those more. Those, again, demand attention. I, I, I feel as though I would really enjoy unpacking these systems that are baked in these super small, tight, incredible card games. Incredible. All right, mm-hmm. next speculation. Napoleon's Triumph. <laughs> now, have you come across this beast? No. Okay. So this is this. Let's just let's let's go back to Command and Colors Ancients. Let's go back to the Combat Commander series, the the tactical war game, the sort of you know pieces on a board. Napoleon's Triumph is the the war game out there. Are you this talking? Is, it's a tweezer game. No, no, no. This is, it's so beautiful, Norm. Go look it up on BGG. <laughs> it's one of the best looking games you'll ever see. It's got a map that rivals that of War of the Ring. It's so much bigger. And the rules are so obtuse to me because it is the game I have the most trouble understanding. I've tried twice now. I've tabled it. I've got this game. I've tabled it twice with Curtis. And we have fought for evenings trying to figure out how to play this thing. It's inc- I don't even know how to explain it, Norm. But you guys must love pain. There's something there. And if you read any reviews, you'll realize this is one of those things, like if you want rabbit holes, go down the Napoleon's Triumph rabbit hole and read some things. And you're going to be like, I want this. I want this. This is the deepest drug of Man, the this game, is sounding you know? like, like a, a person that suffers from closure reading E.E. E. Cummings. 
<laughs> it's like, come on. Here's a phone book. Memorize it. Oh man. Yeah. All right. So, one more speculation, because because we're gonna okay. we're taking this into overtime. This is, here, splatter. Um <laughs> splatter, splatter all over the place here. I've I've played um Great Zimbabwe and Indonesia once each and loved both of my plays of those. Have not played Roads and Boats, Antiquity, or Food Chain Magnate, and I would love to dive a little bit more into Splatter because I think many of those would be worthy of being on a top 10 list. So, so anyway, I hope, thanks for humoring me. I, I had to just throw out some of those speculations because, my goodness, there's so many good games out there, right? And these are, you know, you could call that my wish list, right? That's, uh, those are things I'm just pining to try. All right. So that is a wrap on uh, Luke's top 10. Thank you for, um, you know, lowering the bar just a little bit for me to be able yeah. to, uh, you know, limbo into this uh, dialogue. Well, it's um, fun to chat about it, Norm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that being said, thank you for listening to Cardboard Conjecture. I'm your host, Norm, and... I'm Luke. And we'll catch you later. We are Bridge City Board Gamers, and you can find us on YouTube. You can follow us on Twitter at BC Board Gamers. Our Facebook page is Saskatoon Tabletop Games Community. And on Board Game Geek, Guild number 3039.